0: Lots of people who don't like Joe Biden meet with him because he's the president, and that's what happens when you're president. You meet with a lot of your political enemies. None of them have gone out and said that he is not capable of doing the job, and that is a very important fact.
1: Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow, and this is our weekly roundup where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. Joining me today are three Politicology veterans fan favorites. Matt Bennett is a co-founder of Third Way and executive vice president for public affairs. He his JD from UVA Law. He's a veteran of both Bill Clinton's presidential campaigns and served as deputy assistant to the president for intergovernmental affairs in the Clinton. White House. Matt, it is great to have you back. Welcome.
0: Thank you. Great to be here.
1: Also joining us, Lucy Caldwell, a veteran political strategist, tech founder. She's also a board advisor at the Renew Democracy Initiative and a former senior political advisor at the Goldwater Institute. Lucy, it's always great to see you.
2: I'm happy to see you all and be with all of you today.
1: That's right. And Liz Gilbert Cohen. Liz is a political and government affairs specialist based in Park City, Utah. She's a former executive director of the New Jersey Democratic Party and alum of Governor Phil Murphy's 2017 campaign. And she has worked on the past three DNC national conventions, most recently as president of the 2020 DNC. Liz, great to see you again. Welcome back.
3: Ron, thanks for having me. Great to see everybody.
1: Up first this week, we'll discuss the bombshell special counsel report about Biden's handling of classified documents and the concerns it raised about his memory. Then we'll discuss the Democrat who flipped George Santos's seat, winning a special election in the New York 3rd, and what Democrats can learn heading into November. Later, we'll look at the cryptic statement about a national security threat that set off a firestorm in Washington and what it has to do with an invasive and controversial surveillance program set to expire soon. Then we'll find out what other political developments our panel are paying attention to and why. Finally, for our amazing Politicology Plus members, we're going to talk about the no-labels dubious presidential ticket and their recent letter asking the Justice Department to investigate you, Matt Bennett, for being mean to them. (laughs) No, but seriously, uh, if you're not a member, you're missing about 30% of the episodes we release each week. So if you want to hear more from our brilliant guests, politicology.com slash plus is how you can get access to everything we publish and it's all ad free. And you'll be joining a thoughtful group of pro-democracy listeners who help keep this show going. To get your members-only podcast feed right now, go to politicology.com slash plus, or just open up the show notes for this episode in your podcast player and click the link right at the top. Okay, so last week, the Justice Department released the report from the special counsel investigating President Biden's mishandling of classified documents. The special counsel, Rob Hur, has declined to bring charges against Biden. They found there was insufficient evidence of criminality. That was obviously good news for the Biden team. Uh, But the parts of the report that are driving the news now are what it confirmed about Biden's age and memory. The report said, quote, Biden's memory also appeared to have significant limitations. It said that Biden did not remember even within several years when his son Beau died. The report also said that Biden would likely present himself to a jury as he did during our interview of him as a sympathetic, well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory. Biden's personal lawyer, Bob Bauer, and special counsel of the president, Rich Sauber, refuted her's characterization of Biden's memory in a letter to him that was included in the report. Uh, many Biden allies and Alan Dershowitz have gone after her publicly for stepping beyond his purview. But I think uh, this is a bit wrongheaded, and I wanted to explain why. Um, before charging a crime, federal prosecutors are required Uh, By Title IX of the Justice Manual, to be specific, to consider not simply whether they personally believe, beyond a doubt, there is criminality, but also crucially, whether they believe they would convince a jury that the person is guilty. Uh, So they only bring cases they believe they can win. So the special counsel's description of Biden's poor memory as the reason he's likely to present sympathetically to a jury is a huge factor in his decision not to bring charges. Uh, Still, Biden's age remains a significant political challenge. Uh, In this election, polling conducted after the report was released showed 86% of Americans believe he's too old to serve a second term, 91% of independents. Uh, If you look at attitudes within the parties, Democrats are more concerned about Biden's age than Republicans are about Trump. Uh, 73% of Democrats say Biden's too old for second term, 35% 35 of Republicans said the same about Trump. Another noteworthy gap uh, in this poll was uh, among the people who said only one or the other are too old. 3% said only Trump. 27 percent, so only Biden. And then finally, there is the matter of uh, the medical tests. Biden's team just announced he will not be taking a cognitive exam like the one that Trump took in 2020 during his physical this week. We should also note that last spring, uh, Kitty Rogers and Annie Carney reported that despite his public claims to the contrary, Kevin McCarthy was telling allies that he found Biden uh, mentally sharp. That's the Times characterization of the meetings. In His 60 Minutes interview last fall, former chairman of the Joint Chiefs, uh, General Mark Milley was asked about Biden's age. Milley said it would be inappropriate for him to comment on Biden's health or mental health. But here's what he did have to say
0: Uh, I would just tell you that uh, I meet frequently with the president. um, And every single time I meet with him, um, he he is just fine. How people interpret that is up to them. But uh, I I engage with him frequently and and alert, sound. does his homework, reads the papers, uh, re- reads all the read ahead material, uh, and is very, very engaging in in uh, uh, issues of very serious matters of war and peace and life and death. So if the American people are worried about an individual um, who who is, you know, someone who's making decisions of war and peace and uh, has access to, you know, makes the decisions of nuclear weapons and that sort of thing, I think they can rest easy.
1: Quick note on timing, uh, so you understand how salient that is. Millie's interview aired on October 8th, which was between the two interviews with the special counsel, Biden's two interviews with the special counsel, on October 8th and 9th. So this is happening all at the same time. Uh, And finally, it's worth mentioning, Donald Trump is only four years younger than Biden. So, uh, Matt, Biden's age is obviously uh, not something that he can um, change it is It is one thing completely outside of his control, uh, political dynamics. Um, uh, what can the Biden team do here to convince voters that he's fit to hold office? What does he need to demonstrate?
0: Well, I think what he has to do is take it seriously as a problem because it isn't made up. It isn't you know some b s that his opponents have concocted. It's a real concern. As you pointed out, all of the polling makes clear that people are worried about it, and it makes sense for them to be worried about it. He'd be in his mid 80s by the end of the second term. However, I think there's a couple of things the Biden team needs to make sure that they do. First, uh, while dealing with it seriously, they need to bat it aside aggressively. So, one of the things that we've recommended is that uh, Joe and Jill Biden go on 60 Minutes and talk about it and say, look, I'm not as young as I used to be. I do get tired more easily, like everybody does. I occasionally forget things, uh, but I remember more about what makes this country great than Donald Trump has ever known. And there are—we are both older guys. We were in high school at the same time. We're ba- we're functionally the same age. It depends on how you age. Do you age into wisdom and empathy and experience, or do you age into chaos and anger? and you know the, all of the terrible things that we see from Trump. I think creating a sense of choice between two older people rather than just a referendum on the president's age is the most important political thing for them to do. And one other thing I'd note is that in addition to countless aides going on television saying Joe Biden is sharp as a tack, like General Milley, What we've seen also is the dog that has not barked. Lots of people who don't like Joe Biden meet with him because he's the president, and that's what happens when you're president. You meet with a lot of your political enemies. None of them have gone out and said that he is not capable of doing the job, and that is a very important fact.
1: Lucy, you're nodding.
2: That's a great point. Yeah, I mean, what Matt said, but I'll just add, I've been saying this... (laughs) in many venues in a different form for over a year, including on outlets like Fox that are hostile to Biden, um, which is that I think the Biden campaign needs to run right into this rather than run away from it. Uh, and I think that that's part of what you see. And I think that uh and people can understand how you get into this dynamic, but I think that within the Biden camp, my perception is that a lot of his inner circle has become so sensitive and attuned to a fear that he will come off as old or make a misstep or make a gaffe, which by the way, is something Joe Biden has done forever. It's Mm -hmm. kind of Joe Biden's thing, right? Uh, That they are holding really tightly how much he's out there and really actually not taking as many opportunities to put him out there as they could. And that actually just reinforces the right wing narrative mm. that he's unfit or that he can't keep it together. And and so I think that that's, they're in sort of a, a doom loop around that. And we really need to help them see yeah. that they should get out of it. I think that you're starting to see that among some of the talking class. One of the things that Van Jones said the other night um, in commentary about the New York special, and they started talking about whether or not Biden's age creates different dynamics than in some of these other Democratic wins that we've seen. And he started talking about kind of like it's grandpa v. grandpa, right? (laughs) So do you want like the nice grandpa (laughs) who is decent and as Matt says, has wisdom? Or do you want the grandpa who is frightening and scary? <laughs> yeah. And and so I I do think that that there's that dynamic. But I think putting Biden out there, Biden has been at his best when he acknowledges his own age. He did a yeah. an appearance where someone slipped and fell or something or like tripped somewhere in the audience. And he was on stage and he stopped in the middle of his comments. And he was like, I want to make like, let the record reflect that, I didn't, fa- that wasn't me. Wasn't I was me. not the person who just tripped right now. That's funny, right? Yeah. And that makes people feel like you're being real with them and that we can talk about it. And that's really effective. But even in some of his other public statements, you can almost see, I think we can extrapolate that tension that is happening internally in his team because Biden will say things like, and some of this is just Bidenisms, but Biden will say things like, Mm, I have to be careful about how I say this, or I could get in trouble for this, which is sort of charming and sort of has a, a quality of like, I'm just going to be totally real with you and this is unfiltered. But in the context of all of this fear around his age and all of this people getting riled up about his age, it definitely does reinforce that perception mm. that of what is going on behind the scenes. The last thing I will say is that I think that a lot, way too much has been made of the actual polling numbers of Mm. who thinks Biden's too old versus who thinks Trump is too old. Because one of the things that we know going into this race is that Donald Trump has a very high floor. Like Donald Trump's supporters, a lot of them, are people who are big-time Kool-Aid-drinking members of the MAGA cult. So they are much less likely, and this these are polls of likely voters, which includes those people. Right. These are not just polls of swing voters. They are much less likely to say that Donald Trump seems too old, right? And I believe that people who will come home for Joe Biden at the end of the day in November are much more likely because Joe Biden has a higher ceiling and a lower floor people who will ultimately vote for Joe Biden are likely to say, yeah, he's too old. I wish he were younger because that's normal. (laughs) That's a perfectly reasonable thing to say. But we should, when we're talking about this, not extrapolate how we think this will show up at the polls in November, because when we do that, we wind up getting into our own doom loop that is basically a self-fulfilling prophecy where suddenly we're giving airtime to monster people like dean phillips and others so i would just caution how we read the tea leaves on people saying these two two guys are old and this one's especially old
1: yeah now liz was nodding so let's hear it also liz you spend some time occasionally around the president as you're traveling as he's traveling so uh I'd be particularly interested in how you read this and also what you make of the decision not to take the same cognitive test that trump took
3: I, I was definitely going to mention that and and I was nodding along because I, I love being on with Matt and Lucy and just couldn't agree more um, with with everything that they have been saying. Look, I deeply respect my colleagues at the White House, but I do agree with what has been said thus far that there are ways to be addressing it head on and talking about it that, that kind of isn't happening yet. You know, the, we're not seeing the pivot. We're not seeing the reframe. We're kind of seeing the like... Um, let's just ignore and hope it goes away or talk about numbers or like move to something else that they think might be more important to voters or just like trying to you know, move, move right along. Um, again, just to, to echo what Lucy said, I mean, this man has been making gaffes his entire career. And if he was in a standalone press conference and, you know, said the wrong country for Egypt versus Mexico, you know, that would be a one-off thing. Um, but because it came on the heels of this report, everyone was like, this is a disaster. This is horrible. This, you know, perpetuates the reports. Um, Look, I think not taking the cognitive test is silly, and I would tell any anyone at, at the White House the, the same thing. Um, I think there are ways to um, appease voters um, in, in pretty simple and significant ways. I think this would be one of them. I understand the messaging around not wanting to take it, but I think when you have Kareem uh, get up there from the podium and say he demonstrates his cognitive capabilities every day, maybe not the best messaging after the press conference we just watched and after the report that just came out, like, just take the damn test, you know, if you have nothing to hide, which, as you mentioned, Ron, someone, you know, I've been around him, um, you know, really for the last nearly two years um, on, on almost a monthly basis. Um, I, I don't believe there's anything to hide. This man is so skilled when it comes to the one-on-one or 10-on-one meetings. You know, it is these small group settings, these high-level discussions and meetings and briefings where he really does shine and and show his deep understanding of what's going on in the country and around the world. I do want to acknowledge the report, um, though I, I am feeling kind of queasy about it because I would love for it to just go away. Um, and I say that not because of what came out of the report, but the way in which it was handled, which I think is really worth discussing. And, and I applaud us here on the podcast and many operatives, um, specifically on, on the Democratic side, for really not just trying to disqualify the report and not address what was in it, because that's not how voters think. And And I appreciate when people are talking about the issue and not this overall process question, but I do want to talk about process. So regarding the report, um, look, I, I, just me personally, lots of text messages and emails from from friends and colleagues saying, do we just hand the election to Trump? Like, is this, is this the October surprise? It's going to be nine months long and whatever. And look, it's an obvious political bullshit hack, okay? And for anybody who doesn't see it that way, it's because you are looking at the content and saying, I'm just going to focus on the age piece, but if you read the substance of the report, Joe Biden is fully exonerated, and so no one really is focusing on that. And I think to take, you know, to detract from that, you had the special counsel, who, by the way, this was not this was not the role of the special counsel at all to be talking about cognitive uh, functions and, and capabilities. Look, Donald Trump makes mistakes all the time, and the way that he speaks on the stump, where he uses outlandish language or he inserts adjectives when he doesn't need to. It's a stall tactic when he doesn't know what he is saying. <laughs> I mean, I think that's pretty much been proven. And so this is a man who also makes mistakes time after time. And I think because folks are looking at this like, oh, you know, this came from the special counsel. This is this is law. The last thing that I will say about the, the way that the report was conducted, look, as a Jewish person, October 8th and 9th of last year, I was completely paralyzed as a human. And the fact that I found myself, just as like an average American, not totally being able to function, I simply cannot imagine the President of the United States, the day after this attack, okay, sitting down for multiple hours at a time and doing this report. Now, does that excuse not knowing the year your son died? Everyone can have a different opinion on that. But what I will say is Trump's lawyers would have never allowed him to sit for the interview, for this duration of time, at this time, with all that was going on in the world. And, and I do think that is certainly worth noting.
1: Yeah. Go ahead, Lucy.
2: Okay. Two very small yeah. things. One, agree with Liz and want to want to sort of take that on related to something that you said as you were framing this out, Ron, which is it's fair to say, yeah, well, part of the special counsel's role here is to think about the likelihood of this case being successful. But I think that there's a distinction between saying something in the report like there's not enough evidence to suggest there was malice right Mm -hmm. here Mm -hmm. or whatever Mm -hmm. intent. Uh, Again, I'm showing my layperson here, not a lawyer. That is very distinct from saying this is the temperament of this person, right? Yeah. Like the temperament is this. And so when he's on the stand, he's going to seem sympathetic. That seems really quite, quite distinct.
1: Yeah, I get that. I I mean, they have to think about the reality of what is this going to look like in front of a jury? And I think thinking about how the defendant will present to a jury is valid. I think maybe he could have been more restrained in the way he described Biden in those interviews, but it's still it's still part of the job, isn't it?
2: Sure, yeah I, the
3: I, last I don't I'll think ju- so <laughs> sorry uh, the, i don't I don't
1: think
2: that's right. The last thing I'll just say, and I'm not a Joe Biden apologist, but when you the it's so na- it was such a nasty report. It's so nasty mm. when I think about I, I want everyone to do a thought exercise, think about a person who is a loved one of yours, and if someone said, what year did they die do you instantly think of the year or do you think okay um it yeah. was around this time yeah. and this and so i like my grandfather was a super super precious person to me and now i've just thought of this so i can tell you what year he died but when i think about what year did he die if someone's like what year did your grandfather die i would think okay well my husband and I started dating in 2016 and we had been dating for about nine months when my grandfather got very sick and then he died in the spring. So I guess my grandfather died in 2017. or like, what year did my uncle die? Mm-hmm. Okay, well, yeah. my husband and I had just gotten engaged and it was a few months later. So was, I mean, like that's normal yep. right? <laughs> and yep. that's right. thinking out loud. Yep. And so one of the things that's so... Egregious about this, and I don't mean to go on and on, is that Joe Biden, who seems like he shows up as a pretty sort of genuine, kind human in these interactions, may have just been doing something like that. And then it gets, it gets trans, it sort of gets transmitted into this report of like, guy doesn't even know offhand what year his son died. Yeah. So that saying. was,
3: that was the only reason why I was uh interrupting, which, uh, wasn't that kind, but, um, just to say, when we're talking about what to share, there was no additional context. So like fully subscribe to what you're saying, Lucy, that like, as people are thinking about these things, I think, you know, a little grace should be given. And I believe that is the role of the council. Once you have determined Mm. that this person did not commit a crime, like if you are then going to talk about their personality, their thought process, whatever, and we can, you know, have a debate on whether or not that is the role um, to do that without any context, I think is is um, kind of violently unfair.
1: So, the, to, so the chaser to all of this is that Congress may end up subpoenaing these uh, actual recordings. So, there's no video from these recordings, but there are there are audio recordings. And question of whether you know there will be a fight between one branch and another branch and w- where that'll shake out uh, is still up in the air. But there is the possibility that the public then hears these. Uh later on, and the Republicans in Congress obviously make a big deal out of this so um do you think um you know Matt when you, earlier when you said um they need to lean into this uh really, I was thinking about the way Biden I th- thing now has successfully sort of flipped the script on the border security debate, which is which which I think he could do just as well on this front by as you said um a sixty minutes interview uh addressing it head on do you think that is? Going to be just as effective, um, could be just as effective as the, you know. Send me, send me border security legislation, and I'll sign it now. Like I'll, it'll be the toughest it's ever 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 been done, and I'll get it done now. Just send it to me, Republicans in Congress. You're doing nothing. Is there is there an avenue for him to do something similar here?
0: There absolutely is, and I think you saw in the result of the special election that we're going to talk about, where Tom Swazi embraced the deal that Joe Biden embraced that uh, you know Chris Murphy and others negotiated, it has profoundly changed the chemistry around the immigration debate. I think Republicans are in denial about that uh, because it's relatively recent that it has happened, yep. and I think it is a big, big change. Now, it is a little different. This is a personal characteristic rather than a policy difference. Uh, and as you noted, it's an immutable characteristic that uh, isn't going to get better with time. But I do think what we've seen in the past is when candidates like Barack Obama have addressed nagging questions like his race, or Jack Kennedy addressed nagging questions like his Catholicism, it has uh, lanced the boil. Uh, And in this case, he's got the incredible advantage that his opponent is basically the same age and he can make it about a choice.
1: Yeah. But it's a good uh, segue. So let's talk about. New York three. Uh on Tuesday, uh, as Matt mentioned, Democrat Tom Swazi won a special election in New York to finish the term of <laughs> Olympian astronaut, polio vaccine inventor, <laughs> former representative George Santos. Uh Sw- Swazi beat NASCAR Nassau County legislator. Um Maisie Pillip in the election. He represented the uh, district from 2017 to 2023, but opted to run in the primary for governor instead of re-election of 2022. Um, There have been huge swings in the elections for this particular seat over the last couple of election cycles. In 2020, Biden won the district by eight points. Then Santos won it by about eight points in 2022. And then Swazi managed to flip the script again winning by about eight points. So this makes the Republican uh, majority in the House even slimmer, as many have noted. Uh, but what's most interesting about this, I think, is that Swazi's campaign uh, may have written a blueprint for Democrats uh, in the election cycle. In fact, I think that's how uh, Senator Chris Murphy, Chris Murphy was from Connecticut has uh, described it. The immigration crisis has hit New York hard over the last 18 months. Uh, we've talked about that quite a lot on the show. Republicans tried to make it a central issue in this race. They were calling him Sanctuary Swazi. The leading Republican super PAC spent $3 million on ads saying Swazi, quote, rolled out the red carpet for illegal immigrants. But then Swazi went on offense on immigration, um, just assuming that he's a politicalology listener. Over the last 10 days of the campaign, Democrats actually aired more ads about immigration than Republicans. Here's one of the Swazi ads
0: southern border is 2,000 miles away, but the migrant crisis has landed right in our own backyard. I'll work across the aisle to do what our leaders haven't. Secure our border. Close the routes used for illegal immigration, but open paths to citizenship for those willing to follow the rules.
1: The election was just days after Republicans torpedoed bipartisan legislation on immigration because Trump had lobbied against it to keep the campaign issue and... Uh, after the election, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said the border is now an issue where Democrats are on their front foot instead of on their back foot. Uh, And it's worth noting that on Tuesday night, right as Swazi was starting his victory speech, two pro-Palestinian protesters interrupted him saying that Swazi supports genocide and Swazi's security actually pushed them off the stage and the crowd started chanting Swazi's name. So uh, Lucy, why don't you kick off here? How much can we actually take away from this race, and how much is being maybe read too deeply?
2: Well, it's it's hard to extrapolate. It's hard to extrapolate um, this far out, and it is a special, and so we assume that the voting population looks a little bit different. One thing that is interesting about New York's third congressional district is that it is quite suburban, and so to the degree that we know that suburban voters are going to have a big role to play in the general election in November, we can we can think about some things we might learn. I think that one of the things that is the case here, I think agree that with all that has just sort of been alluded to about the fact that Democrats going on offense makes a lot of sense here. It's actually not unlike what we just talked about with Biden's age. Run into these issues, don't run away from them because we know that the Republican apparatus right now is this house of cards. These are not people who are interested in governing. The people who are interested in governing are dropping like flies. We just saw this week that Mike Gallagher is resigning. There are like, no, I mean, I was anecdotally- (laughs) I was I was talking with another consultant. I was talking with a political consultant last week about um, pro democracy Republicans to support. Like you know, could is there a lane for a few of them? And this consultant, very well intentioned, whose whose background is on the Republican side. Started name like throwing out ideas to me, and I would, you know, there are four hundred and thirty-five members of Congress, <laughs> right. people, so we can't memorize all of their records. But I think, okay, that's interesting. And I was, you know, on the phone with this person, googling, and I was like, okay, well, this person voted against election certification, right? Like, this person just voted for uh, uh impeachment. We're going. Th- so I was, I was like, these are not a fit. Like, this yeah. would not be a fit for this this client. And he's like. Okay, but then there aren't any people to support. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. There's like like maybe a couple, like one or two, and then challengers who are going to lose in a Republican primary because the Republican primary is hyper-MAGA in general. But anyway, all of that is to say the Republican machinery is a house of cards that falls apart when you actually get them on their heels about governing. And so I think that this is very effective. I also think, once again, just to echo something that we talked about in the first segment, I do think that it remains the case that the way pe- we are we are becoming, we are over-anchoring, we are over-indexing hmm. as a kind of chattering class to polling right now. And I love polling and data. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> it's really my jam. But we are looking at how people say they're feeling about something, and we are then deciding that that is a a a defining indicator of how they're going to vote, and it just is not. Someone saying, I'm really pissed off about inflation, and it really bugs me that my groceries cost more, or someone saying, "Uh, I'm concerned about public safety, or these other economic indicators are very much on my mind. We cannot extrapolate from that that they are going to vote against the party in power because of that. And that is the thing that we saw fundamentally in this special election this week, that we are what people say in polling or what issues that they name as top of their list does not mean that just because they're a little bit uh, disappointed with how something is going, that they are not going to ultimately go pull the lever for Swazi or that they won't ultimately do the same in favor of Joe Biden in November.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And it's also worth noting there are deep methodological problems within polling as an industry right now that still haven't been fully resolved. I mean, I know you're very aware of that, but maybe our listeners uh, aren't. Um, Liz, uh, how do you think Democratic candidates can try to take Swazi's blueprint and run across the country? To what extent will they?
3: Oh wow. Um yeah, that's the multi like billion dollar question, right? Is like what what um will people take from this example? Look, the the race was a total rejection of Donald Trump, right? And that is absolutely amazing. Um to the extent that this border issue itself as a single issue or that that was, you know, the defining issue of this race, I think Democrats might be getting too excited that like because he was able to reframe on this one specific issue that shows that, okay, now we are we Democrats are on the front foot and we got this now, et cetera, et cetera. Um, What I want people to remember is look at whose seat you're trying to fill. (laughs) Um, And the race was as much about the issue as it was about restoring goodness to the seat, right? Restoring quality to the office. So I don't want Democrats, I mean, you know, give Chuck Schumer a, a soundbite any day to say, we got this issue and we are the best and whatever, you know, let him do that. But but what I will say, Ron, to your question, I, I think I've made very clear every time I've been um, on the podcast with you, I love a Democrat who brings the fight. And, you know, to, to Matt's point, you know, when he was talking about, you have to address these things head on. You know, you have to be proactive in your messaging, in the way that you speak to voters, but also, you know, how you are putting yourself out there as a candidate. And it's not about towing the party line anymore. It's just not. You have to know your district, you have to know your voters. So, what I'm hoping is that folks will take a look at his race and not just say, this was his specific messaging on the border, which, by the way, I thought was phenomenal, but also the timing with what was happening in DC quite honestly handed him a gift there and maybe not everybody will have that gift of time um and you know what's happening more um you know nationally as folks start talking more and more about this issue but it really is about not shying away yeah and being yeah. very authentic and forthright and determined and you know Matt has been saying this like You have to lean in. I couldn't subscribe to that more. Um, And and again, to Lucy's point, you know, it's amazing what happened. But again, um, people are so excited about what this will mean for November. We have a long time between now and November. And so I just, I want people to keep that in mind as well. I think it's an
1: excellent point. Um, Matt, Border security may not be the thing, right? By November, by the time it comes around, the lesson here is how they handled it and the agility of the messaging. And uh, so I'm curious about what you think about New York 3, but I also wanted to ask you about, um, you know, New York got all the attention, but there was a Pennsylvania election as well. It was quite important. Democrat, uh, in Bucks County won a special election to preserve, uh, their narrow majority in the state house. And we have talked previously, I actually think Lucy mentioned this on a, um, a look ahead a long, long, long time ago about, uh, Pennsylvania's, uh, significance in potential election subversion, um, shenanigans. So I just wonder if you were paying attention to that race, um, and, uh, and if it heralds anything specific.
0: Absolutely. I was paying attention more to the outcome than what it might herald. The outcome, to your point, um, helped preserve democracy the way a whole bunch of races in 2022 did when we were on the knife's edge of, of election deniers taking over very important things like state legislatures and swing states like Pennsylvania. So vitally important that we won that. And and look, I agree very much with both Lucy and Liz on uh, the relative importance of the Swazi victory and his handling of immigration, but I will say this: I, I, I'm the oldest person on this podcast, and I have been doing this for 37 years. And believe me when I tell you that for most of that time, the mantra in Democratic politics was pivot to your strength, go to something that people like, talk about Social Security, talk about the ACA, pivot away, and when it comes to issues that are very difficult. Pivot to things where you're comfortable. So if it's about crime, talk about guns. If it's about immigration, talk about dreamers. That is terrible advice, absolutely horrible advice. But it was advice that was still in play for most people all the way through 2022. In fact, uh, we talked to the people at the trip early in the cycle, and we said, defund the police is going to be a problem for us. You have got to take it head on. And they poo-pooed it. And it was a huge freaking problem. Uh, it well, it had been in 2020, and it was less of a problem in 2022 because, for the most part, they uh, you know, others ignored the advice from the National Party and did take it head on. But people like the chairman of the party, my friend of many years, Saint Patrick Boni, did not take that advice, and uh, to you know, in the end, it, it really hurt. So I think what we have here is, while Liz is certainly correct, that it's very easy to over-index for this weirdo special election where it's a small turnout uh, and a totally different electorate, it is important that people get the message that you've got to go hard on immigration and on border security. And I think one last point, which is that uh, people like Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez have been quoted in the last day saying... It was a mistake. Swazi's message isn't a good national message. We should not go there. So the far left is clearly going to be pushing back against this for, you know, lots of reasons that make sense to them. But but it's terrible politics, and we hope that people follow the Swazi model.
1: Can I just ask you a quick follow up specifically about the far left because that vignette that I described about the pro-Palestinian protester getting pushed off the stage by security has been played, I think, quite a lot. Got a lot of attention. Um, how? How difficult is it right now? It's kind of hard to get a sense on Twitter, for sure, uh, of how big uh, the contingent of uh, far left voters is that is truly unhappy to a point that they will not vote for Joe Biden uh, or Democrats, except maybe in Michigan. Can you speak to a little, a little bit to how, how difficult that line is to walk right now? Um, and, and do you think that was the right message to send?
0: it's always been really really hard i mean in the run up to 2020 we kept saying over and over and over no bernie sanders is not going to be the nominee of our party you are you are in a twitter bubble you are lost you do not understand what is really happening out there and then ultimately obviously we were right about that because democratic voters primary voters are for the most part pretty moderate and they weren't going to choose somebody like sanders the problem we're facing now is it's not just the the distortion lens of Twitter that is causing this uh, discussion that you just flagged, it is real. There are a lot of people out there who are very unhappy with the Biden response to the Gaza war for lots of reasons that are perfectly understandable, even if we don't all share them. Uh, We don't know how many people in the seven or eight states that matter actually will decline to vote for Biden. They're not gonna vote for Trump, but they won't vote for Biden because of this. Certainly there are many in the, Afri- in the Arab American community that, that probably will stick with that pledge. We just don't know how many. And we're talking a game of inches here. I mean, the, the last election was decided by 75,000 votes. So it could be enough to be decisive if it's in the wrong places, but we simply don't know that. And to the point you raised earlier, we're a long way from election day, so things can really change.
2: The piece of this narrative that I'm most worried about that relates to all of these, the the, the specter of the election, age, the Israel-Hamas, you know, peace, and how that's impacting the election, is that all of this noise is creating a false sense, in my mind, false sense, among some people who are on the left or center left, that we are doomed in November And what they are doing when they take that on and when they start flirting with stupid projects like Dean Phillips' weird Get Famous scheme, right? Or any number of them. Or or when they start flirting with stuff like, Should we replace Joe Biden at the top of the ticket? Believe me, actually, it's Matt is the person whom I've heard say this. If you don't like what the Democratic primary voters are choosing for you, (laughs) you will not like what delegates to the DNC choose for you. And that's also completely unrealistic and bad. But all of this, not to suppress people's freedom of inquiry, but all of this chatter all of the chatter around third parties, all of the chatter around Biden's age, all of the chatter around whether or not traditional voting blocks will come out for him, that is creating an echo chamber that mm. has a real risk of creating a self fulfilling prophecy of a Biden loss in November. And so I would just say that we should not, we should, this is a bit meta, but all of these pieces when you have critics of Biden or even people who claim not to be critics of Biden sort of being like, well, should we look at Dean Phillips? Should we look at no label? Should we look at all of that stuff? Those activities that are supposed supposedly good guys trying to mitigate bad outcomes in November, those activities themselves actually are the things mm. that are, you know, the road to hell is paved in good intentions mm. that make possible those bad outcomes.
1: Those you were leaning in there. The-
3: yeah because I'm I'm so glad you brought that up Lucy because the number of like incoming that I see again yes political operative but not working on the Biden campaign you know not in it in that way right now just like oh so like Michelle Obama can can replace him right or like they're going to go to the convention and put a different like all of these conversations I couldn't agree with you more that they are creating this echo chamber that is very frightening. The thing that continues to give me peace of mind is remembering, and I'm sorry, politicology listeners, for bursting any bubble <laughs> of how elections are actually fought and won, though if you listen to this podcast, you know about all of the oh, know. logistics and tactics that that you know. it really comes down to. I do not feel, and I haven't done the polling, again, because we're so many months out, but I'm very interested in this topic in particular. I am so interested to see how this echo chamber has gone into, if at all, the only districts that matter for this Mm. election. Yep. Okay. Because I hear like New York and California elites, or, you know, like you have all these people who think they understand elections and the Biden campaign, and we put more money here, or we need to do this kind of ad. You know, these are all very well-intentioned people, honestly, mostly with money and resources to say, we got to, you know, we got to fight and we got to do this thing. These people are not in counties. That will determine the election. So I'm so glad you brought it up, Lucy, because it's like this is something that is happening. And I'm sure many of the listeners um, of this podcast, you know, find themselves hearing about okay, so he's going to drop out right after, you know, he clinches Super Tuesday, right? And then does Kamala rise up? Does she say his VP? (laughs) Do they put someone else in? Like hearing all of these crazy things like, hey, Liz, can you send me like the Robert rules of order, you know, from your time at the DNC to tell me how, you know, all the delegates are going to do this voting? It will come down to a handful of counties. And that is all that matters in this election. And I think, you know, we as operatives and People who really want to make an impact on this election just need to stay focused on that.
1: Whew. Well said. I do. I do also want to underscore the point about the convention because a convention does not get you a better result than uh, Joe Biden. If you're so, yeah. That, that's a that's a really important point. Uh, okay. Try going to a convention. <laughs> no, don't. Really, don't.
3: <laughs> would would not would not recommend. <laughs>
1: Let's uh, touch on uh, national security here for a minute. Um, Because on Wednesday, which is yesterday, we're recording on Thursday, you get this on Friday, uh, the head of the House Intelligence Committee, Mike Turner, released a cryptic statement that set off a firestorm in Capitol Hill. And in the statement, he said, the committee made uh, information about a, quote, serious national security threat available to all House members. um, When he was asked about... uh, Turner's statement, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan told reporters that he had actually reached out earlier in the week to schedule a briefing with the Gang of Eight. The Gang of Eight is the Democratic and Republican leaders in the House and Senate and the chairs and ranking members of the House and Senate Intelligence Committees. That briefing was scheduled for uh, Thursday, uh, again, which is the day we're recording. Sullivan said he was a bit surprised that Turner released a statement ahead of the meeting. ABC News is reporting that the threat is about Russia wanting to send a nuclear weapon to space. And the sources told ABC that it wouldn't be a nuke that Russia could drop on Earth, but one that could be used against satellites. So still very bad, but not what you might think of if you hear Russia wants to put a nuke in space. Uh, Ranking member Jim Himes put out a statement shortly after Turner saying that the warning is significant but not a cause for panic. On the Senate side, uh, Intelligence Intelligence Committee Chair Mark Warner and Ranking Member Marco Rubio released a joint statement saying they'd been following this from the start, uh, that they were discussing an appropriate response. They also cautioned about potentially disclosing sources and methods for collecting the intelligence. Speaking of, according to reporting in the Washington Post, this information was gathered using authorities granted to the intelligence community under the infamous Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, you've heard it referred to as FISA, uh, which uh, allows the FBI to search through the communications of Americans without a warrant, and they can even search through the data based on a single field, like your email address. Um, Section 702 was set to expire on April 9th, and the House hasn't been able to find enough support to extend it. Uh, Wednesday, they had to shelve plans for a vote to reauthorize it because of sharp divisions over new protections. Um, specifically, Jerry Nadler and Jim Jordan have both criticized the bill that uh, Speaker Maga Mike Johnson was pushing because it didn't add strong enough protections for Americans. And in the WAPO piece they wrote, uh, Nadler and Jordan said, Turner, a strong proponent of the surveillance authority, appears to want to use the information about the adversary uh, adversary's capability to convince skeptical colleagues that 702 is an indispensable intelligence tool one official said. I don't really know where to begin with this other than the headline really freaked me out. and Also, I personally am quite skeptical of 702. I don't like it, Um, but I'm curious. We should just go around the horn here. How did you respond to the chain reaction that Turner's uh, release set off? Matt, do you want to lead off?
0: Sure thing. Uh, First, I I will just interpret Jake Sullivan speak when he says he was a bit surprised. That is him saying, what the actual
1: yeah. Uh,
0: uh, he could not believe it, and I'm sure he was um, very upset about that. Uh, look, the the most interesting thing about all this to me, unless we've discovered that it is something truly you know, life-changing in terms of our national security posture, and I heard reports this morning that it might mean they want to put a nuclear reactor in space so they could create some kind of energy field that would affect satellites. We don't know. It does not appear that they're... I mean, they have a thousand nuclear missiles pointed at the United States at the moment. It's not going to make it any worse. What this led me to think was several things around the politics of these issues. First of all, uh, Republicans, of course, have the opportunity to turn up the heat on Russia Uh, by helping our allies in ways that are moral and just and good. And they have so far declined to do that by failing to move the Ukraine Supplemental Bill, which is desperately, desperately needed. And if they fail to do that, uh, it could lead to the collapse of our allies and the strengthening of Russia and and the endangerment to the United States. It is profoundly anti-American and bad. And so uh, one hopes that this will help concentrate the mind, but I have zero confidence that it will do that. And then the second thing I was thinking is, notwithstanding Nadler's um, unease about it and your own, um, weirdly, this goes into another uh, piece of evidence about how, in the national divorce, Democrats are getting national security. You know, we're <laughs> the ones that believe in securing the country and protecting our allies and having a strong military, and apparently the MAGA Republicans do not believe that. So. It'll be interesting to see what happens after the Sullivan briefing, and um, my guess is that this will peter out a bit. That it probably was a little bit of effort on the part of Turner to to use leverage in the FISA debate, but um, obviously we don't yeah.
1: know. Lucy,
2: yeah i I would say that the 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 aspect of this story as it's unfolded this week that has been interesting to me is that it's another reminder of the way in which some members of the Republican, Republicans in Congress are really, really willing to engage with these topics in a way that is so unstatesmanlike and that has so little regard for the American people or the American people's own sense of security. And it shows up in two ways. One, something like throwing this out there to make people fear that a nuclear weapon is about to strike the U.S. Right, or or something. I mean, it's hard to think of something worse, but something something absolutely catastrophic. It was obviously really, really irresponsible of Turner to speak out that way, and and pretty beyond the pale. But then, even when MAGA Republicans are expressing concerns that, from a policy perspective, may be valid for example, tightening up of, of the FISA the reauthorization bill and what some of the amendments that they do or don't adopt will be, just as Nadler has expressed these concerns himself, right? These MAGA Republicans do it also in a way that is intended to erode Americans' confidence in our institutions. So for ex- example, Jim Jordan, in talking about whether he would vote for reauthorization and, and talking about sort of like whether or not it would be an appropriate piece of legislation to pass. He said that the bill without amendments is not good enough, quote, because it still relies on the FBI to oversee itself. The same FBI who we know has done all kinds of things that they shouldn't have done. And I mentioned that because it's just really jarring and it still shocks me, right? I spend all my time trying to burn MAGA Republicans (laughs) to the ground, but it is shocking actually, that such a tenured member of Congress, a person who almost became Speaker of the House, that his preferred style of governing involves stoking fear and distrust of one of our core law enforcement agencies. And I have a background as a kind of like Cato Institute style former Republican, right? I am a person who, on the spectrum of privacy and security, my impulse is to index toward privacy, right? And give up some some amount of security in favor of individual privacy, individual autonomy, et cetera. But you can make that case, you can make that policy case in a way where you uphold our institutions and do not create and foment fear about our institutions or suggest to the American people that they should be distrustful of the Federal Bureau of of Investigation, a a bedrock of uh, American, uh, you know, keeping the peace. So I just say that to say that I think that we should keep looking out for these things because this impulse from the right is showing up in all kinds of different ways. They have not met a piece of legislation that they cannot use (laughs) to stoke fear and distrust of everyday Americans in our American institutions. And so To me, that is dangerous in a whole other layer than just whether or not this is reauthorized or not.
1: Yeah, totally, Coach. I couldn't have said that better. Liz, how are you, how are you thinking about this? You called, you phoned a friend.
2: <laughs> I
3: did, um, which I'll talk about in a second. But Ron, yeah. you like very kind of coyly slipped in there that you are skeptical of 702. Yeah. So um, before yeah. I, I share some of my thoughts, I was wondering if you could actually expand <sighs> on that.
1: Yeah, I could. It might take a long time, but I just had this long conversation. So I've been skeptical for a long time of just surveillance in general, but um, I think it started for me when I watched the Citizen Four documentary, which was about Edward Snowden's uh, leak. And I know he's become a very controversial figure. And these days is more associated with like the weird parts of the right now. Um, but we also totally reformed our surveillance laws in the wake of the revelation that he made. And ever since then, I've been paying a lot more Attention to the balance that we have to strike between privacy and security, as Lucy was alluding to. And um, I, I have recently been paying a lot of attention to the centralization of data and the um and the way the vast amounts of data can be used uh without our consent, without our knowledge, uh used and abused, and not just by government actors, but by private actors on behalf of the government. Uh, specifically, and I'm I'm on the heels of an interview with Kashmir Hill, who broke the reporting about Clearview AI and facial recognition being used by law enforcement. I'm sure you're all aware of the controversies there. Um, but in general, um, the the technology that's available at our fingertips now is gathering data with and without our consent all the time. And I'm just increasingly concerned about the centralization of it and who has access to it and what they're doing with it without our Uh, Without our knowledge, especially when it comes to law enforcement, because if there's a whole lot of data about you that you don't know exists, you don't even know how detailed it is, and that information can then be cherry picked potentially by bad actors, whether they're in corporations or government, to paint a retroactive picture of your actions at a certain point, to build a case against you or a file uh, on you, again, without your knowledge, it becomes very difficult to defend yourself. And it's dubious how the uh, rights to privacy will be interpreted um, if you if you ever have to defend. So I think there's a, a big, rich debate to be had there, and I don't think there's a single good answer. Um, but in general, I find it more useful to be skeptical of uh, surveillance and, and the centralization of data like that in the hands of government.
3: Yeah, so so it's like, you know, a conversation on many topics, but it's really, you know, a conversation on ethics, yeah. right? And I feel like that's kind of where you're going. But um, look, so, so a few things. Um, first, you know, President Obama in his second term spoke at the FBI headquarters and I think kind of distilled it down perfectly by saying a variety of factors have continued to complicate America's efforts to both defend our nation and uphold our civil liberties. So like Lucy was just touching on that, but kind of ever since he, you know, said it when he was making this big statement talking about how surveillance and, you know, so on and so forth has all kind of changed in the wake of 9-11. And so he was really kind of speaking to that. And so, you know, of course, it's complicated and maybe I'm just hawkish in this way. But to me, if we aren't doing everything we can to protect ourselves, what are we even doing? Um, And as you mentioned, Ron, look, someone I'm very close to just retired from DOJ and I love chatting with her about this topic. And, you know, to say she was fired up would be a gross (laughs) understatement. But, um, you know, she told me, she said, you cannot imagine how important this is for law enforcement that it legitimately stops terrorist attacks. And so to bring it back to the political and all of this, look, these Republicans don't care about what is best for American safety. That is how I feel reading... Reading these articles, I think it's a reaction to Americans having no trust in the FBI after January six, you know, like Lucy and Matt have kind of talked about already and so they're trying to put restrictions on the FBI and to Lucy's point about erosion of confidence you know that Americans might have in our institutions like this is this is one of many examples, but one that I think will be on full display you know Americans kind of asked the FBI in the wake of whatever it might be. Why did you not stop such and such? But then afterwards, the mm. government will take away the tools that they need and should and must have um, to be able to, to do their job. And of course, it's complicated, but it is important, really important. Um, again, an understatement, and it cannot and must not become the political issue that that I think we can all see that it is clearly becoming.
1: Yeah, it is. So CJ just wrote, note in America, law enforcement is supposed to need probable cause before they can go looking into communications. So I think, so I think this is the, this is the crux of 702, right? Is whether, whether they actually need probable cause to look into your communications in the first place, and whether you are aware of the proceedings of the, you know, whether you are afforded due process in their pursuit of, uh, those records. And right now the courts operate in secret and you don't have access to that information. I think that's part of the problem. And if, and, we, and if we were, as Lucy was alluding to, having a responsible uh, debate about the ethics here, maybe some of this could be worked through, but that isn't, that isn't how any of this is. It's, it's all turned into political theater. Now that we have caught up on some of the big stories this week, uh, let's find out what our panel is paying attention to. Matt, what do you got?
0: I am watching the RFK Super PAC and the RFK Junior campaign. So uh, the campaign itself is imploding in real time. Uh, the about half the staff quit the other day and wrote letters saying that uh, while they like RFK Junior for reasons I don't understand, they can't stand the way he's running the campaign. He hired his uh, sister or his daughter-in-law to be the campaign manager. She hired her nanny to be the chief of staff. They are spending enormous sums of money on the top, uh, almost no money on the junior staff. This is not going anywhere, this campaign. Meanwhile, the Super PAC, which ran a Super Bowl ad that he had to apologize for and was insane and idiotic, uh, is also falling apart in real time. Uh, They have admitted to breaking the law in the New York Times by saying that they are trying to get ballot access for the campaign, which they are not allowed to do, uh, and they claimed to have raised $16 million, but they gave half of it back because apparently it was a loan. So uh, the RFK situation is a shit show.
1: I'm glad you mentioned that because we almost put it in plus today, but then we're doing no labels. But that's a good, yeah. Go ahead, Lucy.
2: They're two sides of the same gross coin, but the loan is really <laughs> weird, Matt, because the loan, the weird thing about the loan of giving the money back from the pack. To the donor, this weird, strange character named Gavin De Becker, is that that Gavin De Becker is also one of the biggest recipients of funds from the campaign. So, from the campaign committee, is paying this guy gobs of money, and then the pack was basically taking a loan from it. None of it make it make sense.
1: <laughs> Lucy, what did you bring? Was that was that your thing? <laughs> Okay. (laughs) Sorry, taking some liberties here. Uh, No. We love it.
2: Much, much less sexy, much more um, in the weeds and file this under the category of I'm just not sure about it. But I noticed with interest this week a story about the fact that later this year, for the first time, federal Medicaid dollars are going to be used on housing. Um, This is made possible... Um, under a under a, a waiver that the Biden administration had sought, uh, that is a a waiver based on the idea that you know the um, the Medicaid can basically as a program allow states to test out innovative ideas. So they're going to pilot this program. A bunch of states are coming on board for this, but initially they're going to pilot this program um, in Oregon and in Arizona. In Oregon, the pilot will be around. It'll target populations that are at risk of becoming homeless. And in Arizona, it will target populations of people who um, are are dealing with mental illness. Um, And I say file this under I'm not sure about it because it just feels like it could be um, a policy that has trouble being effective in the broader landscape of our affordable housing crisis. And I'm also not sure that I feel so hot to trot on the idea of Medicaid becoming a program that is touching the affordable housing issue. Although I totally understand the way in which housing is connected to healthcare. So, Ron, in a way, this is kind of like an oldie but a goodie, like to the time where you and I were, you know, ensconced <laughs> on the right and we could have policy policy debates over this. But I, I do think it's an interesting program to, to keep an eye on. Um, Though it's not as exciting. Yeah, <laughs> but I, think that's I, a I do good think one. it's it's a strange one.
1: It's a strange one. I could also see it becoming uh, um uh, beat up quite a lot. Uh totally. though, as it as it, you know, becomes more well known. Um
2: In ugly ways. Yeah, like in ugly like in electoral context. Yeah, like in Yeah, in completely
1: inhumane ways. Yeah. Totally. The, mm-hmm, in which yeah, mm-hmm, in which
2: mm-hmm. yeah. Kind of kinda of like fights over um <laughs> kind of like fights over Snap, for example. Uh, right. Like yeah. people spending yeah. what Republicans wanting to spend a lot of resourcing on enforcing, uh, enforcing sort of like restrictions on what people could spend yeah. food stamps on, yeah. you
1: know, because it's this sort of like, by demonizing like the people putative. who need them. Yeah,
2: exactly. Yeah. yeah.
1: Um, Liz, what'd you bring?
3: I bet you can guess. <laughs> um, I'm a little on the nose this week. I apologize. Okay. Um, The last I was on, I said, what I am watching is this New Jersey Democratic primary for the Bob Menendez seat. Um, Obviously something very near and dear to my heart for a lot of reasons, but I come actually with specifics um, this week based on what was um, going on last week in Monmouth County. So we've talked or maybe I've talked a lot about the New Jersey um, county party line system as a refresher. There are 21 counties in New Jersey. The county party chairs determine your ballot placement. And then it's all about voting for a line. So when you are running for office, for statewide office, there are 21 people in a state of 9 million plus who matter because you want the county party line. And if you are not on the line, you could be... In the next column, or you could be 10 columns away and people might not even know you're running. Like it is really that kind of tactical. The reason why I'm bringing it up this week is the first county um, party convention took place last week and it was Monmouth County, which is very interesting because it is the hometown county of the governor. Why that is interesting is because the first lady of the state, the governor's wife, is running for this Senate seat. She lost the convention by 18 points to Congressman Andy Kim, who is running for the seat. I'm bringing this up for a variety of reasons. Number one, nobody was expecting the First Lady. By the way, one of her kids, I think her oldest son, as well as the governor himself, sits on the county committee. This is in-person voting. So they are sitting there watching this go down. Um, So that was a quite awkward experience. (laughs) And again, maybe Andy Kim wins one county party convention and then he goes away into... Oblivion, and you know, it was a fluke, and whatever, not my expectation, but possible. The reason why I am significantly paying attention to this, not only because of that loss that the first lady had, but because Andy Kim, whether or not he can win the primary, is very determined to make his campaign for this Senate seat about abolishing the county party line system. And a lot of his supporters are all about it. And Andy is saying, If for nothing else, I will make sure that New Jersey politics are never the same. Mm. And so he is running not only off the line in most counties. I mean, now he is Monmouth, but, um, you know, he doesn't anticipate getting other county party lines unless it goes to this contested convention uh, system and, and he wins, which, you know, anything is possible, but usually unlikely in some of the bigger counties that have very significant um, party boss machinery, which Mammoth doesn't have compared to Bergen County and, you know, Passaic and Essex and so on. Um, But Andy is really taking a very hard stance. And this was before he was running for Senate. So I want to bring attention to that. He has always been, even when he has had the line as a member of Congress, he has always been against the system and wants to use this primary to you know really speak to that and and see if he can do some good work in getting that to go away. So I'm going to be watching all of these county party conventions not only for sport, you know, as my uh you know as a pastime for me but to see is this is this an election that can really kind of break the back of some of these party bosses and and the system that you know still to this day is very strong. This
1: is a great one and seriously kudos to Andy Kim for taking this on because it's uh, it's just just for the ickiness factor alone, like I'm cheering him no on. Question. Um, and I will say Joe Cohn, who's running in the primary f- to fill Andy's seat, was on this podcast just uh a week or two ago. Um, and I'm wishing him luck, but we t- also talked about the county line a bit. Uh he he uh he he said like like he's not making it a main issue for him just because uh he like Andy's filling that lane, but yep. certainly um it is complicating things for for him, certainly. Um, uh, okay. I just want a quick thing. This is from Molly McHugh. Um, in case you missed it last week, uh, she was on and explained that she is raising funds to help Ukrainians uh, buy some drones for surveillance and communications missions. Um, again, these have nothing to do with uh, weapons. Uh, and she said, that there was a great response from the politicalology community. So thank you for that. She was able to get the first drones to them by Valentine's Day. Um, so huge thanks to everybody who was part of that. Also, Molly is heading to Ukraine, uh, I think, next week, but there's still time to pitch in and help with those supplies. Um, if you are so inclined, we put the link to the fundraiser in the show notes uh, again this week. So um, shout out to Molly and to everybody who pitched in to help her. Um, get some Ukrainians some aid, even though it didn't come from the United States Congress. So uh, there's that. Um, okay, let's flip over to Politicology Plus, where <laughs> we're going to talk about uh, all things, no labels. <laughs> Matt's pumped for this one. Um, where can everybody find you on the internet, Matt?
0: Uh, I am on Twitter still, or whatever they call it now, uh, at Third Way Matt B. am also on threads at the same handle, and our website is ThirdWay.org.
1: And Liz? Oh, are you still, still on my mind? social? Okay. S-
3: yeah, still on my social media hiatus. Um, so please reach out to <laughs> psychology <laughs> if you have any questions, comments, concerns. Um, please reach out to Ron. You and Frank would be very Sadler. Helpful.
1: You and Frank Sadler. We field all your emails. Frank doesn't want to be found Thank you. either. Lucy, <laughs> how, <laughs> where can people find you?
2: I am still on Twitter at Lucy M Caldwell.
1: All right, everybody. Thanks for listening today. If you have questions about anything we discussed today, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. Whether it's an episode idea, a topic recommendation, or just a simple note about what you thought, we love to hear from you. And we might even use it on an upcoming episode. Also... If you can head over to the Apple Podcast app and rate us five stars and leave a review there, we'd really appreciate it. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. I'm Ron Steslow, and I'll see you in the next episode.